A couple of preliminary notes. I wanted to say thank you to all of you, since we're now moving into a new series, for joining us on the last journey of the core values. Um, church doesn't happen unless you show up, as you know. Church isn't a building. Um, in fact, the church building is actually a synagogue. Uh, <laughs> Church is not a building, as we say, it's the people. And so when you come and gather and you participate, it's just been a tremendous blessing for uh, Danielle and I. And I was thinking about our services, and you know, services are something that we do. It's a form of spirituality that takes place in the life and the culture of what church is. Uh, it's something that you gather, you sit, you listen, you, we sing, and there's all these elements to a service. And it reminds me of the ancient tradition that we are a part of, that the gathering place can become very utilitarian, meaning it can become a place where all of a sudden it's no longer a, a place of holiness, it's a place of commodity. It's a place of consumption. So you go to this church or that church, or you attend this place or that place because of what they give you or what they don't give you, and you choose that place. And I get that. We're going to talk a little bit about that actually at our faith and technology seminar that's coming up in April. Um, but wanted to just share, as uh, I've been musing about our services, it's truly my prayer that our gatherings are not just utilitarian, not just commodities, but they're sacred, they're holy space. Something happens within us and to us, individually and as a community when we gather, when you pull out your Bibles and when you, when you reflect, when you ask questions, uh, when you share with one another, when you're challenged by the word or you know, when you grab a cup of coffee. That's a very spiritual experience. Something, something very deep happens there. So as we continue on with Spark and as we um, move into the future of what God would have us to do in this series and in the series that are coming after that, uh, just wanted to say that preliminary note that it is our prayer and our hope that what happens in this space is sacred, uh, not just utilitarian. And my prayer for all of us is that I as well as you. We get to meet God in a whole new way. I mean, that's what church is supposed to be about. Um, I hope we don't just show up um, because there's something there that we get to consume. Uh, my prayer is that we show up because there's a God who's alive that we get to encounter uh, when we gather in this place. And so that's a little bit of what the heart and the soul of Spark is in addition to the values. And we are entering into what's going to be about a 10-week series on Jesus. And let me just say this. 10 weeks on Jesus is awesome. <laughs> and not enough. Uh, we, Danielle and I, when we met, um, we were just like wrestling over the over the thousands of things that we, what is it that we want to share? What is it that we want to cover? What is it that we want to discover? What is it that we want to journey on with this uh, journey of Jesus? And what I'm excited about with this journey and this series is we're going to, as Daniel mentioned, ask a series of questions and let the questions sit in our community and let those questions work on us. Rather than us coming to discover something about Jesus, like, let's make some statements of fact. Okay, Jesus was Jewish. He was born approximately 4 to 6 BC. He 
lived and ministered in the first century. Okay, we have some facts. We, and then there's those statements of belief we talked about before. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate here on, on the earth. His sacrifice on the cross is the redemptive propitiation for all of our sins, or however you want to say those kinds of things. There's a lot of things that we could say, and a lot of things that could be taught, and a lot of things that we could drill into us, and those are all over the place. What I'm excited about with this series as we wrestled with what it is that we want to talk about, we're going to just leave it to some questions and allow those questions to mull over us and ask some serious questions as to that, that will hopefully enlighten and illuminate the journey and the path that we've been on. So the first question that we're going to ask is going to be this question, who do you say that I am? And as simple of a question as this is, it's actually quite a profound one. A couple background things. Oh, sorry for this being cut off there. This is at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And we're going to read a little bit of that passage where Jesus asked this question of, of his disciples. And then we're going to settle in on this question resonating in our community and asking the question, what, what does this question do to us? What kind of conflicts does this arise? What kind of challenges does it provide for us? What kind of assumptions does this illuminate in us? I'd like to start with a story. Several years ago when Danielle and I, Dan- Danielle and I were uh, purchasing our home, we were sitting down across the table from our real estate agent, and there's a woman who's there in addition, who's the spouse, and then you've got my wife there, so you have two women, so what do you two women do? They start talking, and all I want to do is sign papers. So anyway, they start telling the story, and they start ch- chit-chatting. Turns out, the real estate agent that we were working with used to work for the Secret Service. So now I want to talk. Okay, before you want to talk, now I want to talk. Give me some stories. And there was actually a guy uh, on the Secret Service on one of our trips to Israel. And we just sat and I was like, okay, forget historical context. Tell me some stories about some presidents, you know. Give me me some inside scoop. Well, he was the uh, Secret Service during the time of Ronald Reagan. And he tells the story that he was dating this woman at this time. And they were, he was stationed, or at least portion where he was stationed, was at a place called Bel Air Presbyterian Church, where Ronald Reagan used to go to church, where Danielle used to work. So now we have Danielle used to work there, and Secret Service, and the whole thing's just like, okay, I'm trying to sign papers as fast as I can, but I really want to hear the story. So he begins to tell this story of his girlfriend that he was dating at the time. She apparently didn't know fully what he did. There was a brand new relationship, and they were getting to know one another. And he thought it would be a fun thing to just surprise her. So he says, let's go to the church. And this was, you know, during um, Reagan's administration. Let's go to the church, and I'm going to sit you down in a pew. And then he begins to prep her. I'm going to bring somebody to sit next to you, but don't freak out. And she's like... She's kind of clueless. Okay, I don't know. We're just going to church. It's just this kind of a thing. So she sits down in a pew and then brings over Ronald and Nancy Reagan and sits down right next to her. Now, I I asked him, I said, is this the next part that you're telling me a true story? He says, "It's, it's absolutely true. And then she was there to confirm it. She looks over at Ronald and Nancy and introduces herself. Um, I think her name was Joni. Hi, my name's Joni. And she goes, what's your name? (laughs) Like you do. And Ron and Nancy were very polite and very kind, like you do. He says, well, 
I'm Ronald, and this is my wife, Nancy. She goes, oh, hi, well, it's nice to meet you. What do you do? <laughs> now, at this particular point in the story, uh, this guy who's the Secret Service is telling, me, telling us that his earpiece is exploding off of his ear due to the laughter from all the other Secret <laughs> Service agents that are stationed around the church. And they're like, who is this girl that you're dating? He goes, well... Um, I'm the president. And she goes, oh, the president of what? <laughs> and then he goes, the president of the United States. And then she goes, oh, oh, I've seen you before on TV. Yeah, I know you. Now, I love that story for a multitude of reasons. But I also love that story when it comes to Jesus, because I have a feeling, and this is my story too, and I'll share with you a little bit of my story, that if we were to walk Jesus into this room and sit him down next to you, I wonder, would we recognize who he is? Part of the story with Joni is, you know, it's a little bit of context. You're in church. The president's usually on a TV screen somewhere. So it's a little bit of, you know, you're in this context, and now you're in this context, so your brain is needing to adjust. But a lot of it, too, is much of what we see or perceive about celebrities or presidents are, is coming through a filter of the media or coming through the filter of, of, of television and news and all those kinds of things. But if we were to sit down face-to-face -face with somebody, there would probably be a sense that, we don't really know this person as well as we think we do. And I have a feeling that is exactly the same thing when it comes to Jesus. That because of our culture, because of the things that we are imbued with all the time about Jesus, we have a picture or an image or a sense of who this Jesus person is through the filter of those lenses. But if Jesus were to come and sit down right next to us and talk to us and, and share with us his life, would we actually recognize who he is? The reason is because we have turned Jesus into all sorts of things in our culture. This being one of my favorite. Listen carefully to the lyrics. I cut out the instrumental for you so you don't
I love that video. Is that not awesome? Danielle was so concerned that I was going to... I was downloading this video off YouTube, and she said, why are you doing that? I says, well, uh, we're going to play that on Sunday. And she thought I meant we're going to play that on Sunday. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> you ready, Abraham? We're going to... This, this movie right here, Jesus is a friend. Um, if you get an opportunity, uh, anybody know the David Crowder band? Yeah, David Crowder band actually did this live. So they, they took it, and it's kind of, kind of a rendition. It's, uh, it's absolutely beautiful. Well, that's one example of a cultural rendition of Jesus. And even within those lyrics, as funny, and, and hopefully we can have some fun with it as possible, um, but even as funny and as entertaining as that is, and it's obviously kind of like, I don't know even what decade that's going to fall into, um, there are some theologies or some ideas about Jesus that are very much imbued within that song. And if you take a look at popular culture, we can come up with all sorts of different images of Jesus. You've got your buddy Jesus. You've got your Catholic Jesus. You've got your Mormon Jesus. There's some people that have actually done some anthropological studies and tried to mesh a whole bunch of pictures to try to get an accurate depiction of what a first century Palestinian man might have looked like, and they came up with this picture. You've got your iconic Jesus. You've got your Jesus that is kind of a conglomeration of all sorts of uh, gods and ideologies and ideas. You've got your tech Jesus. <laughs> Some of you will get that later. Um, you've got your baseball Jesus. You've got your America, Miss America sash Jesus, which is one of my f- favorite pictures because if you take a look at Jesus who kind of floats and has this blue Miss America sash, it reminds me only of Jenny Joseph from Columbia TriStar Pictures, ladies. <clears throat> now, what's important about this is to understand That in each and every one of those pictures and images of Jesus, question, what does that tell us about Jesus? Or does that tell us more about us? Do these images, do these ideas, do these theologies, do these pictures of Jesus, do these depictions, do these conversations that we have of Jesus, really tell us about who Jesus is? Or do they tell us more about who we are? are. This can go on. We brand Jesus then, and we take all Christian things and Jesus things, and we make them our own. We turn them into trinkets. Uh, This is a Jesus bank in which you can deposit money. Uh, Jesus doesn't like you to smoke, so apparently you put Jesus's face in an ashtray and, you know, that kind of deal. And then, of course, you've got your action figure Jesus kind of a deal. And Christians are are famous for doing this. Now, I don't want to sound too down upon all these things because these things are, you know, they're ubiquitous. They're all over the place. And I'll tell you in, in a few moments that I was very much a part of this culture. So if, I'm, if I am making fun, I'm making fun of myself as well. But it's important to understand something about this. When we talk about Jesus, when we communicate about him, when we share things with people and we claim to quote from him and to say, well, Jesus would have loved this, or Jesus would have wanted this, or Jesus would have advocated for this kind of a deal. We have to ask ourselves some very deep questions. Is this really a reflection of Jesus, or is this more a reflection of ourselves? In other words, if Jesus sat down and talked to us, would we actually recognize him? Or, to put it more pointedly, if Jesus were to walk into this place and we did recognize him, would it actually be Jesus or would it actually be a mirror reflecting who we are? 
There was an article recently in the New York Times entitled Fighting Over God's Image. And the article began to talk about how pictures and images of Jesus were used and abused in many ways to promulgate ideas and ideologies, primarily racism. And in this book, The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and the Saga of Race in America, uh, Edward Bloom and Paul Harvey began to discuss how the images of Jesus were used, again, for people to say that Jesus, because he is this particular image, because he is this particular person, would believe and would want these particular things to happen in our culture. And so they go on to, to um, document this all the way throughout our history. Fascinatingly enough, the people who founded our country, because they were leaving Catholicism from England and Anglicanism, did not want any images or depictions of Jesus to be around. So they began to abolish those. They crossed all of those out. And it wasn't until the late 1800s, the um, early 1900s, when those images began to come back into our culture and begin to become as ubiquitous as they are now. I love some of these quotes from this book. I think his character too holy and sacred to be attempted by the pencil. Here's another quote by Vernon Jordan. The picturing of the life and sufferings of our Savior by these institutions falls nothing short of blasphemy. These people understood that when you make images and pictures of Jesus, when you do that, it's probably more a reflection of ourselves than it is a reflection of who Jesus is. <clears throat> Only in the late 19th century did images of God and Jesus become commonplace in churches, Sunday school books, Bibles, and homes. There are many forces at work, uh, steam printing presses, new canals and railroads, and not least the immigration of hundreds of thousands of Catholics who brought, them, uh, brought with them an array of crucifixes, Madonnas, and busts of saints. Protestants began producing their own images, often to appeal to children, and gradually became more comfortable with the holy images. In the 20th century, the United States began exploring such, such images, most notably Warner Salmon's 1941 Head of Christ, which you see depicted there, which is one of the most reproduced images in world history. When we begin to talk about Jesus... I think it's really important to begin with that question. Who do you really say that he is? And if we make statements about who he is, we must be cautious to say, well, is Jesus on our side? And have we created him in our image? As the saying goes, God created man in his image. And then we return the favor. I grew up in a very conservative what is known as a Reformed church, meaning coming from the 1500s Reformed tradition. And we had very, very clear doctrines on who Jesus was. I participated in my youth group. There's me. It's a little embarrassing. And fully, fully, I was so cool, Mitch. And here I am at graduation. I've got my black belt around my neck just because I was that cool. And this youth group taught me all of the right doctrines, all the things that I was supposed to know, all the things that I was supposed to believe about who Jesus was. And I became so engrossed in this Jesus story that on my 1981 Chevy Monza, I plastered over 65 bumper stickers all about who Jesus was. Things like, you know, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. Um, if you think you're perfect, try walking on water. You know, all of these bumper stickers that I had, and it was incredible. I wish I had a picture of it to show you. 
because the journey that I've had has been to understand, to know very, very clearly, and I was taught right doctrine in the right ways of who Jesus is. But as God had moved me personally towards new discoveries, new questions, new inquiries, you start to realize that this image and picture of Jesus that you have, while it is a good one, it is an image of Jesus, it's a picture of Jesus, it's an idea of Jesus that saved me, was incomplete and needed to grow and needed to expand and needed further thinking and further journeying. And so I wanted to ask some more questions. And then, as many of you know, God has led Danielle and I on a fantastic journey um, going to Israel and learning new things about who he is there, learning from each and every one of you, and the journey just continues. So let's find the context and the question right here in Matthew 16. And here's the first question that we're going to ask in the beginning of our Jesus series. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. There's obviously a lot to expand uh, and explore right there. For now, just a note, Caesarea Philippi is one location in the region of Israel that is approximately 26 miles north of where Jesus did the vast majority of his ministry. So this question, who do you say that I am, comes in the context outside of the quote-unquote normal practices of Jesus, where he's in the synagogue, where he's out in the grain fields, and he's with his disciples in this particular area. The bottom arrow indicates uh, Capernaum, or Capernaum, where he would have uh, where his hometown was, his home base, and his home ministry. A lot of the miracles that you read of in your Bible happen there. And then it says at the very beginning in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, there is nothing recorded between verses 12 and verse 13. In other words, it's very likely that Jesus started here and begins to walk this entire way with his disciples up to this region and doesn't say a thing. Now, it's important to understand that Caesarea Philippi is a pagan city. It was the central location for the worship of a goat god, Pan. And I've spared you the pictures. You can Google them later. The reason why this is important is because all of these things, all of these, this activity that's happening here, on, you can see the picture that there's the cave there. I'll go back and you can see a little bit of the cave there and where um, a temple would have been. There's a grotto here for goats and all sorts of grotesque kind of worship to this goat god. I think what's important, at least for this message to say, is that this question of who do you say that I am comes at the backdrop of the culture and one of the extreme pieces of the culture in Jesus' day. So he doesn't just ask the question, who do you say that I am as they're walking along the road? 
he sets the backdrop of pagan mythological worship, something that would have been deeply imbued in the life and in in the mentality and the thinking of the people. So why would you go all the way this far, 26 miles north, to ask a question, who do you say that I am? I think there's something profound there that we need to consider and understand. And that is the question of how we understand who Jesus is, is not just a personal one, although it is personal, but it comes with the weight of how have you been influenced by the world around you. So he asked this question along that backdrop, and it forces the disciples to think about the question and think about the answer to the question or to think about how they're going to respond to the question in light of, oh, they're standing at this place. They're standing at a place of pagan mythology and grotesque worship. They're standing at a place where a goat god is the center of life and vitality. So, do we stand at those places often? And when we stand in front of those places, the things that give us life, the things that are detrimental to us, kind of the grotesque places of our lives, this seems to be an appropriate place for us to ask the question, who do you say that I am in the midst of all of this life? There's a lot of potential answers to this question. They could have come up with all sorts of things. And people, scholars throughout history, even today, are still developing different ideas, different ways to think about it. That they say this, three answers. First, John the Baptist. Why would they say that? Well, if you remember earlier in Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist is beheaded, and people are a little concerned, number one, that he is the Messiah that's going to come back to life, and the people that are in power are suggesting, if this John the Baptist got these people all riled up, we don't want him back, and Jesus begins to do something and minister along the same lines of John the Baptist, which requires us to study a little bit more about who he is. So maybe he's in line with a John the Baptist kind of a character, and some people are suggesting that. Some people are saying this. This is a rumor that's going around. Some people are saying Jesus is John the Baptist. Come back to life. This wild and crazy man declaring the kingdom of God sounds very much like Jesus. Some people say that he's Elijah. I want to read this passage from Malachi chapter 4. Starting in verse 5 and 6. At the very end of the Old Testament, there's this passage that says, See... I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So one of the other rumors that's going around about Jesus is that he's this prophet that's going to bring this entire family together. It's going to bring Israel together. It's going to bring people together, lest God bring his destruction like we've experienced before. And then they say, well, maybe some people are even saying Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And there's a prophetic utterance and a prophetic passage in Deuteronomy 18 where the prophet is going to come and restore Israel. It's going to make everything right. And so these are the things in this time that are being said about Jesus. And I think what's fascinating is just like our day, that multiple things are being said about who Jesus is, multiple things are being said about who Jesus was then as well. And what's fascinating is that Jesus doesn't rebuke any of those. 
Now, I don't know how much we can read into that. But he doesn't say no, no, no. He doesn't say you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, that's what's being said. Let's consider that. Let's take that into consideration. Peter's answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus follows it up with this statement. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter makes this amazing statement. Christ, Son of the living God, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that is going to bring all of those things to fulfillment. That's what's happening right here, right now, in you, Jesus. You are the Son of God. You are the Son of the living God. And God, who is alive and well, is here in you, in our presence, in our midst. Is that a true statement? Is that something that also ought to be considered? Just like Jeremiah, the prophets, Elijah, John the Baptist, all of these things. Again, this is the question. Should all those things be considered? Who is this Jesus? And then I love this re- response when he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And what I'd like to suggest to you in the question that you are asking and the question that we are asking regarding who is this person? Who do we say that he is? That this trust or this relationship that we have in Jesus is not based in an argument. It's based in an experience. In other words, a lot of churches and a lot of ministries, and again, I was a part of that, will stand and proclaim very, very clearly all the things that you need to believe about Jesus. And we'll say those things very clearly. We'll write them down. We'll delineate them. We'll even put bullet points and numbers behind. These are the things that you need to believe about Jesus. What does Jesus say? This thing that you've now confessed about me was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. So, what I'm going to suggest to us in this opening as we begin this journey of Jesus is that as you journey with this question, who do you say that he is? This is not just about opening up your mind to saying, well, there's things that I don't know and theologies that I don't have and making sure that I get all of the doctrine right. This is about opening up your soul and saying, okay, God, speak to me. Talk to me. Teach me. Illuminate for me. Move me. Nudge me. Disrupt me. This journey of Jesus and there's thousands of books on doctrine, according to Jesus, is not about flesh and blood. The answer to the question is not going to come to you by flesh and blood. The answer is going to come revealed by the Father in heaven. And this is, I think, a beautiful journey that you and I are on. And that's why we're saying, in this journey that we are going to be on, let's open up our heart. Not just open up our mind. You don't have to be convinced. If you want to be convinced, we can get books on that. You don't have to be argued into believing certain things about Jesus. You know, in fact, arguments, if you have ever been a part of a debate, often don't convince you of anything. They only make you more convinced of the things that you already believe. And you just come up with more arguments. So this isn't about an argument. This isn't about a debate. This is about 
experiencing the living God of this universe. And I know that we have um, in our community, and I, this is what I love about Spark, we have people on all spectrums of this spiritual journey, from being Christians to a long time, to not being Christians at all, to having deep questions, having uncertainties, wherever you are in the spectrum. This is what's so beautiful about this. If you have been a Christian, kind of like my story, for a very, very long time, you have all of these images through your denomination, through your church experience, that has told you everything you need to know about Jesus. This is not going to be revealed to you by flesh and blood. Open up your heart. And if you are brand new, you're still even wrestling with whether or not there is even a God, trying to figure out, did Jesus even exist? What is this whole Christianity thing all about? There are good arguments, and we can talk about those things, but ultimately what we are saying, open up your heart. Allow God to speak to you. Allow God to nourish you. Allow God to move you. So, ultimately this question, who do you say that I am, is a question of the heart as much as it is of the mind. It's a question of our hearts as much as it is a question of our minds. And so, there are four things I want to leave us with that I'd like for us to consider as we journey into this. These are just some kind of guide rails, some things that we should consider. As we consider this question of who this Jesus person is, let us consider carefully, not flippantly, carefully. This is a really important subject. It is, Jesus is arguably the most influential person on the face of the planet. His teachings arguably have been the most influential teachings on the face of the planet. And so let us consider carefully what it is that he is calling us, what it is that he's saying, what it is that he's commissioning, what it is that he's challenging us. And this quote by C.S. Lewis is very, very insightful into that. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. as a suggestion. <laughs> so number one, let's consider carefully. This is not something we enter into lightly. This isn't something that we pull off Jesus off of our shelf, dust him off, and we say, okay, here he is. This is something we enter into deeply. Two, let's enter in historically. And this is where the mind does come in. In his book, um, Did Jesus Exist? Bart Ehrman, an agnostic, states it quite clearly. Jesus existed, and those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. From a dispassionate point of view, there was a Jesus of Nazareth. So just in case there's any question about the existence of Jesus, he takes 400 and some odd pages to argue that. N.T. Wright also has this quote, if you've been in Foundation Experiment, this is one of the quotes 
um, that we've been using. I am someone who believes that being a Christian necessarily entails doing business with history, and that history, done for all it's worth, will challenge spurious versions of Christianity. If we really believe in any sense in the incarnation of the word, which is from the John 1 passage, if we believe in that, we are bound to take seriously the flesh that the word became. And since that flesh was first century Jewish flesh, we should rejoice in any and every advance in our understanding of first century Judaism and seek to apply those insights to our reading of the Gospels. One, let's consider carefully. Two, let's consider historically. There's some great work to be done and new things that we can discover, not just from our cultural Jesus, but from the Jesus of history. Number three, let's also consider spiritually. It is our prayer and hope that through this journey that you would receive something like this. Brendan Manning from his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. My deepest awareness of myself. This is an identity question. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. So as we journey with Jesus and consider carefully and historically, let's also consider spiritually because this, this is where it makes all the difference in the world. When Jesus touches us, changes us, loves us, this is a very personal and real thing, which is why we're doing what we're doing. Last, let's consider humbly. So many people come to discussions and studies and arguments already knowing everything. They're called teenagers. And then we grow up, and some of us don't leave our junior high juvenile ways behind. I am convinced that adults are really just junior hires who have just gotten bigger. G.K. Chesterton says this, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, and has been found difficult and left untried. And let's end with one quote by Stephen Covey. Humility truly is the mother of all virtues. It makes us a vessel, a vehicle, an agent instead of the source or the principle. It unleashes all other learning, all growth and process. With the humility that comes from being principle-centered, we're empowered to learn from the past, have hope for the future, and act with confidence in the present. And I love that quote because this sense of humility as we come to know Jesus hopefully does that for us. This study of Jesus, this discovery of Jesus, or for many of us, a rediscovery of who this person is and was and will always be, can challenge us and empower us to learn from all of that, um, can give us a hope for the future of where we're heading, and can give us a sense of confidence for how we are to live as followers of Jesus right here, right now. So, let us consider carefully historically, spiritually, and humbly. And ultimately, and I'll ask um, Mitch and Abraham to come back up, we'll close in a song. Ultimately, we're going to ask you and myself and us, ultimately, to trust. Trust this amazing person. Trust that his ways are good ways. Trust that his teachings can radically transform who we are. Trust that what we can discover and what we can know about him is reliable. And trust that as we submit ourselves to him, radical, amazing things can happen to us and in us 
and through us. So that's our question. Who do you say that he is? Let me close in a word of prayer and we'll sing a closing song. God, thank you for an opportunity that we have to declare not that we know you fully, per se, but that we desire to know you even more. And as we pursue uh, this journey together, God, may we take this question seriously. And may we wrestle with it and may it churn our hearts and our souls. May it do damage to any false preconceptions that we have. And may it build up any faint realities and truths that we own. And may it transform any weaknesses, any insecurities. May you love us once again in ways that we have yet to experience through this study and this journey together. We pray in your name.